Welcome back, you guys. Thank you very much for joining me. My name is Swadik Mayanja, but you can call me Q. And yes, I am Q the Nurse. Um, we are on another episode of the Everyday Hero Show, where I bring to you someone in your life or someone in my life that brings us joy, but does not get the credit that they deserve. Uh, today, I am lucky enough, truly lucky enough to have on the show uh, Lance. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Um, so, Lance, I, let's just jump right on in this because um, you are a little bit of everything, right? So, first of all, I'm, I'm in healthcare, right? So, you're a doctor, so I think that's absolutely amazing. But on top of that, yep. right, we are not just our careers. On top of the fact that you are a doctor, you are also, I don't know, do you compete in weightlifting? Is that a hobby you do? I also heard that you were a commentator for boxing or... You do so many things. Can you just tell us a little bit of what are you in? What do you have your feet in, and uh, and how did you get there? Okay, so I guess um, I'm English. I went to medical school in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I did my first couple of years of um, post grad training. Sort of, I wanted to do sports medicine, so I graduated back in '98. And I wanted to do sports medicine. Back, back then, there weren't too many roads in the UK into sports medicine. I got involved with doing trackside doctoring for motorsports first because of a, a senior colleague who worked in one of the emergency departments I worked in. So I did a bit of trackside stuff back in Scotland. And just because there wasn't a clear path to sports medicine, I sort of went more critical care towards emergency. Oh, there you go. And during some of my training there in Scotland, I got sort of talked into maybe considering going to Australia and doing emergency medicine in Australia because the Australian system is a bit different to the British system. You kind of get a bit more involved in that initial uh, assessment and stabilisation, but you've often got patients there for a lot longer in the emergency department. So mm. it transfers when you go back to the UK that, that skill set transfers back really well. So um, came over to Australia in 2003, started working at a big teaching hospital, busy trauma centre in Liverpool. Um, I did my ICU, I did my paediatrics, I did a little bit of anaesthetics as well. And during that time, sort of all sorts of issues with the, the qualifications from the UK not transferring oh, to the definitely. Australian system, the need for more exams. Um, and I've always been a bit more just patient-focused, you know, doing endless exams and doing the academic thing never really was my thing. Okay. So I decided to transfer a little further southwest of Sydney to a, a big hospital, very busy hospital called Campbelltown. And um, so I sort of sidestepped out of the academic system and worked in emergency there for eight years. <clears throat> and um, during that time, various contacts, um, I got into ringside medicine. So Ring I don't si- oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm okay. the ringside physician. Oh, my. Um, and I initially started off with some amateur stuff, but I've covered world title fights. I now cover um, MMA, kickboxing, Muay Thai, um, any combat sport. If the if the promoter and it's really by word of mouth, if the promoter wants me to cover their show, they give me a call, and if I can do it, I do it. Um, in oh, 
we've been out here a couple of years and ironically coming from Scotland, yeah. you know, I trained in the gym. I started training in the gym when I was about 15, but never really went much further. Did a bit of boxing and kickboxing myself at the start of university. Um, but it's very hard to maintain a tra- training regime for that sort of stuff when you're constantly getting moved about. So the UK system makes you do one month in this hospital, one month in another hospital. You're always moving around. It's very hard to – plus I didn't have a car. So public transport was to get back to the same place and be the same coach and stuff like that. But you can always find a gym. So that used to be my priority. Whenever I used to get another posting to a different hospital to do a term in surgery or something like that, one of the first things I'd do – get stuff into the accommodation, go and find the nearest gym. Okay. And then I knew that was like my uh, destabilizing force wherever I went. And um, so I said, ironically, because trained in Scotland, we came over here 2006. My wife's wife and stepdaughter um, are Scottish. So we went to a big Highland gathering um, near Sydney and uh, we met the guys who um, run a group called the Tartan Warriors. So they do kind of strongman and Highland Games. Oh, yes. And got talking to them and was very interested. But then I was doing intensive care, I think, at that time. So night shifts for 12 hours, for three or four in a row. And then on today's, it's hard to do anything else when you're doing that. <laughs> you better believe. And then there was like a, a gap where it was just really just work. And um, I think 07, 08... Um, I'd started, I think, Susan messaged her back and said that rather than just doing normal weights, just to keep the cost down, I got a just a big two-inch thick solid bar instead of getting a proper weightlifting bar. Yeah. And just used to use that in the garage. Um, got into a bit more of the strongman type training, but not competitive strongman itself. Um, then I can't remember exactly how it came about, but there was a – a guy who was studying medicine, again, at the University of Sydney. And he'd come over from Canada to study medicine in Australia due to all the competitive nature of getting into medical school in Canada. And um, he started a strongman training group around about the same time. Susie bought me a stone mould for a stone for my birthday in 2008, which was the March. We went to a Highland gathering again in the April... Um, and after the guys had done their competition and stuff like that, I went it up and I managed to lift a stone, which was 130 kilos. I think the one that I lifted was. Yeah. And they said, well, and people don't come out of the audience and lift the stones. <laughs> so I got offered, did I want to go back and do a Highland gathering in the May? Um, and that was it. That was the start of my involvement with the Tartan Warriors and David Huxley and all the guys that I've sort of competed with there. That's amazing. That same year, Strongman as a sport started going in a more um, more accessible way in Australia. So there'd always been Strongman competitions in Australia from the early 90s, but it was a quite a closed group. It was if you knew this person or you knew that person and they sort of gave you a shot. Okay. And, you know, momentum had built up and a guy started organising strongman competitions. So I competed in one of the first really open strongman competitions in Australia at the end of 2008. Um, I think I ended up fourth 
um, in, the, in the heavyweight division. And sort of there it was. Uh, that year as well, in the September, was the first Highland Games, bigger Highland Games with all the hammers and the weights and the stones and a whole lot organised by one of the guys who'd been a top warrior for ages. Um, so I did my first full Highland Games that year. I did my first real strongman competition that year. And that's and it just I just carried on doing it from there. Oh my God, nice. that's a story. That's a story, Lance. Good for you. I mean, so, for, so I just have to say, because um, I know a lot of, obviously, I'm a nurse. I'm sorry, I know many people in the healthcare field. Um, and once people get into the healthcare field, if that is their passion, good for them. But if it's not their entire passion, if they have a, something else outside of it, it is nearly impossible. And just like you said, with you trying to train and getting shipped off from one place to another, and even if you're not yeah. going from one place to another, working night shift, working 12-hour days, it is very, very difficult for healthcare providers to dedicate all of that time, especially if you are going to be someone that is competing and not just a spectator or someone who does it for fun. So right off the bat, that is good for you. Congratulations on being able to do that, right? Um, but I just I, I have many questions. So I, before I even get into the details of any of this stuff, I do want to let you know my I am ignorant to the Iron Man, Strong Man, Highland. I, I am. I don't know anything about it. So please, please bear with me when I am asking you all of these questions. No so, problem at all. So the Highland, what is it called? The Highland. Highland Games. So the Highland Games are not the same as the Strong Man competitions. No, you get. Even, there's a fair few guys that do both, but Highland Games. Is that like Highland tricky? Games goes back. 400 years to the first organised um, Highland Games in Scotland. Some of the things that are done in modern strongman have been used as tests of strength for hundreds of years, particularly strong sort of background in the the Celtic and the sort of Scandinavian nations. Yes. But stone lifting is all around the world. In fact, there's quite a lot of a tradition of that sort of heavy stone lifting in the Basque area of northern Spain. Um, and in Pakistan. Okay. So it goes all around, even the Pacific Islands. Uh, so um, so I, I do have to ask, so when I'm, like, in my, in my head, when I'm picturing, like, the big log carries, the tug of war, the, 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 the actual stone carries, the Atlas stones, all of that is in both or mostly in the Highland Games? Um, mostly in Strongman. You might find it tacked on to the Highland Games, but the Highland Games is more specifically the the hammer throw, oh, but yeah. with a solid handle on the hammer, oh, um, which is thought to have come from maybe having a competition with the blacksmith's hammer back in the, in the older days. Yes. Um, the stone put, like modern shot put, and in fact modern shot put is based around the stone put, or even the, they used to use the old shots that have been used on the battlefields. Oh, um, so the, the stone put, shot put... Um, the weight throw, so a 28-pound and a 56-pound weight thrown for distance held in one hand, and um, and the caber, obviously. Okay. okay. So that's the, basically the log, heavier at one end, slightly tapered at the other, picked up and either turned for accuracy. Yeah. Or, in fact, there used to be quite a strong tradition. In fact, the first competitions in Australia were actually done for how far you could throw it. Yeah, that's what so I'm picturing. So there's actually two caber competitions. Okay. 
Okay. All right. So thank you for, uh, you know, uh, separating the two. I appreciate that. So I do want to take us back because I want to build, I want to build to the point where you are as a, you know, a doctor, you, you, you ringside doctor and you are competitive, competing. Let's talk about why you decided in the first place to do medicine, right? Like this, just like real brief origin story. Was it your parents? Was it, I just, why, why medicine? Um, in the, in the school system in the UK, you had to kind of pick, well, <clears throat> I was, it was very much pumped into me, have a job that's going to be secure for life, um, that's, that's useful. Yes. That's, that's practical, that's of some use, rather than, yeah, you have a qualification and you do a thing, but, you know, if you were plucked out of that, your hole is filled, you know, like the hand out the bucket of water. <laughs> exactly. Um, not so much to be indispensable, but, you know, and, and having a bit of a, a social conscience as well, I guess. But I was, I was a good, I was good academic when I was at high school. Um, it tapered off a little bit after that, but, um, so it was, it was deciding on, okay, what, what fulfills those? I was starting to get a real interest in health and fitness then. Um, and it sort of made sense, but it was, it was quite a logical decision at that stage to go, right, it's going to be medicine because that's academic, it's sort of sciencey, um, or possibly engineering with a background, with a fallback as I progressed through and I got the right sort of GCSEs or O-levels as they're called in the UK at school and then progressed on and then got a bit more interested in the sort of human side. And I bucked the system because... It was very much for the exams you had to do pre-university. For going into medical school, it would be the sciences, um, pretty much the sciences, and I'm talking your chemistry, biology, physics. Anatomy? And very little variation from that. But when I decided to drop the biology, because the curriculum for biology was very much like plant-based and fruit flies and all that sort of stuff, um, because my, my sixth form college, so where I was sort of 16, 17 to 18 pre to university, offered a psychology um, qualification. And it seemed to me far more logical to study psychology than to study biology. Yes. Though I later regretted that in the first year of medical <laughs> school, I had no idea what a Krebs cycle was. Oh, I'm And that was kind of important. Yes. But it now has no relevance to me what the Krebs cycle is. So, you know, you don't care about it made a difference for that year <laughs> after that. But I've, I've found that having that background in psychology has made a massive difference and probably not so much doing the qualification, but the mindset to think that that was an important thing to do. Yes. That's you know, a bit of a chicken and egg thing, I guess. Oh, okay. Um, and so it sounds good because it also, for me, fitness was a huge reason I wanted to get into health. And it sounds like a little bit of that for you as well. So yeah. I, I know, and I actually, in high school, I did track and field. I did shot put, state champion. I don't want to brag, but I'll brag. But uh, Yeah, because um, you were an athlete. I was an athlete. So we, did you play sports? Were you always doing heavy lifting, weightlifting in high school? Did you do track, soccer, football, um, rug, anything? Did you play any sports or were you, it's just academic? and you like fitness you like going to the gym yeah look i guess um 
I was I was pretty skinny at school. Um, I'm pretty tall, so I'm about six two, six three. And um, the heaviest I was before I went to university was about eighty five kilos. So what's that? One eighty five, maybe one ninety pounds. Mm. Um, the only sport I played competitively at school. I mean, that was in the days. Not to say all oh, the good old days, you know, hark back false nostalgia. But you know, we played rugby. We played football, stroke soccer. We did a bit of athletics, but the only team that I was on that I did outside of school was cricket. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. But as we, as I got towards the end of high school and for the UK high school finishes at 16. Yes. And then I went to a separate sort of institution to do another two years of where we did what we call our A-levels. Okay. Um, I started getting into the martial arts and kickboxing. Mm. So I did kickboxing with a couple of friends of mine from there. Um, and that sort of persisted through high school, through the, the sort of sixth form uh, time. And then I sort of dug out the weights that my dad had at home. And I think he was, he was fiddling around with them, but he wasn't really particularly um, – he didn't push us – into it. My brother sort of dabbled a little bit. My brother's a, a year younger than me, but I started getting quite into doing yeah. the weights and would train three or four times a week using initially, I think it was a program out of a, um, a book of my dad's that was written in 1957 or something like that. <laughs> but the basics are the basics. Exactly. Progressive resistance, work hard. Um, I think the most well if you loaded the barbell completely, it was 135 pounds. Wow. Um, and the heaviest I could load onto the dumbbells was about 30 pounds so that they were even, or if you loaded one up, you could get it to 40 pounds. That was about it. So you were um, You were doing reps for days? Oh, yeah, that was all pretty much. I don't think I did less than 10 reps on anything. Oh, of course not. Um, That's decent, yeah. And it was, yeah, it, it was basic, but that's that's what you should be doing when you start off. So that's that's really what it was. So then that, when it came to, I remember when it came to looking through all the prospectuses for universities, and um, the only other medical person in my family was my dad's cousin. Okay. And my dad's cousin's, her father had been an engineering hospital, so he looked after the boiler systems and stuff like that. So she was around hospitals a lot. Um, so she was the only other doctor. My grandmother on my father's side was a nurse. And back in the old school nursing days, she was like a matron of these massive hospitals. Um, but my dad's cousin, Vicky, was a psychiatrist. She's done medical school in Leeds and then ended up in Scotland. And she was the one that encouraged, if you're going to go and do medical school, go to a Scottish medical school, they're better. Wonderful. All right. So, okay. All right. So now I know the fitness background and now I know the medical background. Coming together, yeah. let's talk about when it came together. So did you start competing or did you get really into the uh, the Highland Games and the strongman competition and all of that stuff before you got into the combat, being a physician uh uh, for the combat sports or was it the other way around did it happen at the same time because I, I I'm I'm a little confused at the timeline between you being a ringside physician and you being a competitor or is it all happening you know simultaneously I think it happened just coincidentally around about the same time 
I think I saw I saw a guy doing his pre-fight medical a couple of weeks ago. And he said, man, are you still doing this? You did my first fight in 2007. <laughs> um, and then I was like, I figured it had been about 10 years I'd been doing it. And 2007 happened to be around about the time where I went from just training in the gym to training more for sort of strongman type stuff. But the first competitions were in 08 okay. where I competed. Um, yeah, and it was it was a... It was a guy I knew who's an ex ex military medic, and he was doing sort of first responder stuff. And he got approached because of word of mouth by the boxing club um, just down the coast in Lake Illawarra to be able to cover their boxing fight. But it's a legal requirement here to have a physician ringside for boxing, kickboxing stuff. Oddly enough. Full contact karate, taekwondo, you don't have to have a doctor. You can have a doctor, but it's not a legal requirement. It's one of those funny things where the law and common sense don't really really match up. But because he was doing nursing shifts in the emergency department where I was at the time, he just said, look, are you interested? It's going to be two days. I'll sort of come along with my gear, but they need a doctor. So that was literally the first one, sort of mid-2007. Um, it was two days. It was something like the New South Wales titles or PCYC titles. So PCYC is the Police and Citizens Youth Club. Okay. They do a lot of this sort of amateur boxing stuff. And, um, yeah, and then it went from there because I think at that, at that sort of job, I had other people, other promoters, other sort of club coaches come up and say, are you doing this now? Can you do mine in a month? And it grew from there. Good for you. So um, when it, let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's the most interesting thing ever. I had no idea. Like, obviously, when I'm watching boxing, I know that there's a ringside physician, but I didn't. I had no idea the details of it. So uh, explain <laughs> to me how this works. So are you the one that decides when the, the towel needs to be thrown in? Are you the one that stops the fight? Are, like, or are you just that one athlete's ringside physician and you're helping making sure that he's the ble- the bleeding stops are you are you making sure that you know he's getting hydrated what is your job entail so the role of the ringside physician and it's pretty similar around the world now mm. is that you check all the fighters before they fight okay so you can you can say mm, you're not fit to fight uh, doesn't happen very often mostly Fighters turn up and they're they're fit. Otherwise, they wouldn't have turned up. Why so, would you? So, what what would make someone not fit to fight? Uh, if they have a current infection. So, the one guy that I've I've cancelled is I always do a bit. You know, are you are you well at the moment? Are you on any regular medications? You know, you get a few guys with mild asthma. Make sure they've got their uh, albuterol with them, whatever. But generally, are you fit to fight? And I had one kickboxer. I think last year, and he said. Oh man, I'm pretty sick. I've had the flu for a couple of days. All right. Why are you here? <laughs> Why? Why'd you come? What are you looking for? <laughs> Why are you here? Why okay, because you you're not fighting. I don't need to examine you. You've just told me you're sick. Therefore, you're unfit to fight. Off you go. And that's um, the only person you've ever kicked out or said you can't. Pretty much, yes. There's been other ones where they always say, "Oh yeah, no, no injuries. I'm fit to go." Stuff like that. Um, generally, with the 
the experienced amateurs or even the inexperienced amateurs, they, their coaches will have seen them right. The coach generally has got them their best interests. And when you, you mentioned about throwing in the towel, that's really their coach in their corner. Okay. So I don't tell their corner to throw in the towel. Um, I only stop it if medically I think this person, either their corner hasn't recognized it or the referee hasn't recognized that they're struggling. Um, so really for me to stop it, that's bad. Oh, okay. It's now got to the stage where not only is it not competitive, but it's dangerous. Yes. Um, and have you ever, have, have you ever had to, um, I think, yeah, two or three times where the referee looked like they were going to, and then they didn't. And I stopped it. Um, but literally only two or three times I tend to, because now as well, my reputation precedes me generally speaking the 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 officials we work as a team of course so really the first person who can notice it is the referee and in in the amateurs it's not as much of an issue because it's very much there is no money here there is there is a title but that doesn't mean anything compared to the health and safety of the fighter and really everybody's first priority should be the health and safety of the fighters. Not is it a good fight, <laughs> that's nice, but for health and safety of the fighters. So I do the pre-fight check, then when they're in the ring, generally speaking, the people that should be stopping it are their corner um, or the referee. And then if, if relevant, I do a specific check after the fights. But generally speaking, because I'm actually I, – I do this as opposed to – carrying on doing motorsport because I find motorsport really boring. You've done um, motorsport? Well, I did. I was a trackside doctor when I was in Scotland for a year or two. Oh, okay. Um, so the main ones would have been on the motorcycle days when they come off, and I've seen some pretty decent injuries on that. Um, but just watching and hearing cars or bikes go round and round and round for the vast majority of the day – like I said, I did a bit of boxing and kickboxing when I was younger. And um, to sit there and watch it, I'll actually watch it. So you can tell when a fighter needs to be specifically checked. Yes. Um, or whether you've watched them and you can tell they get out of the ring, they're fine. They don't need anything specific. Uh, and then depending on injuries, sometimes there might be a few stitches, particularly when I do the Muay Thai and the elbows are flying and, you know, then I need to do a few sutures at the end of the night as well. But um, that's that's the main responsibilities as opposed to, you know, there is a legal requirement. It is illegal to have that sort of a, a combat sport without a doctor there. Yes, yes. I know there are some physicians who don't do the wound management afterwards who, um, who don't pay as much attention maybe mm-hmm. because they're just there because they need to be there. But, you know... The reason I'm there is I quite like spectating on um, combat sports, and I think it's very important as the physician that you are spectating. You get an idea about how the fight is moving compared first round compared to the third round or or even later rounds in the professionals. Um, So you're already ahead up. And then when you see them, if they get a bad knock to the head, even if it's not an eight count, 
you've got an idea. Hmm, yeah. I'm going to be watching you very, very carefully from now on. So I have to say, combat sports. Like I said, I'm not. I'm not a professional. I don't. It's not even my go-to when I am a spectator. But I have to say, what I do, the little I do know. Um, talking about karate, talking about taekwondo, talking about like all of that kind of stuff is very different, I think, than the MMA side of things. I feel like MMA, you can go from zero to 100 really quickly. Something bad can go wrong in like a yeah. drop of a dime. Do, like, and, and I feel like at those points, it's usually a knockout game over. Let's get him out of here. Let's get him checked. But like, do you need to step in when it's MMA? Is it a lot more serious? Are people getting injured more often? Is it lifelong injuries? Is that a thing that's happening in the MMA world? Well, funnily enough, the the only two fatalities that have happened in the ring in New South Wales, which is my state of Australia, were ooh, probably about 10 years ago, there was a kickboxer in Liverpool who got... He took a lot of head trauma. I don't think he was KO'd in the fight, but then he collapsed just shortly after the fight um, with the usual sort of um, subdural thing. And despite having good care and being only minutes from a, a neurosurgical hospital, he unfortunately died. And one more recently, only two or three years ago, which was a boxing fight. Um in terms of soft tissue stuff, my experience is the Muay Thai is the worst. Oh, really? You know, the elbows, the elbows get going. Particularly, they tend to pace themselves. Most Muay Thai fights, three rounds, tops of five. Um, they go fairly sort of soft in the first round or two, feel each other out, and then the elbows come out. So you know, big wounds to the to the face and to the to the scalp from those in terms of the mma yeah a few wounds that i've dealt with funnily enough i've seen more uh, shoulder dislocations in just the boxing ring oh. um that may be because the fighters that i've seen in terms of mma they tend to be much better conditioned overall those guys are all round strong and conditioned, whereas some of the boxers you'll find they can box, they have boxed, um, and they get in and their their conditioning and maybe their overall strength isn't quite as up to scratch. They maybe think, oh, you know, my unstable shoulder, it'll be okay. I'm only throwing punches, you know, nobody's arm barring me or whatever. Yeah. Um so that's that's been my experience, but I I tell you, my my level of alertness when it comes to watching MMA is far more. The other thing is, because they're in that cage, if there's a an issue in the uh, in the squared arena, I can be on the on the ringside through the ropes in under thirty Jumping seconds. In, yes. With the with the cage, it's not so easy. And I guess the other thing that is a a fairly recurrent thing is if there's a knockdown in boxing or kickboxing, then your opponent is standing back. Yes. Sometimes it can be very tricky in MMA. Was that a knockout punch? Oh, Depending yes. on the angle, you can't quite see it. They go to the mat. The guy is allowed to jump on them. That's the whole point. Uh, but that's where, like I said, 
the the ringside official and that the third guy in the ring, the referee is so important that they're switched on and they can see was he out when he hit the canvas? Has he got any chance at all to defend himself? How soon does he have to jump in there and push the other guy off? Or is it a knockdown, but there was no real head injury, the guy's just stumbled back? And then is it totally fine for him to be jumped on and whether he gets to his knees, whether he whatever? So, yes, the level of um, the level of alertness for MMA has to be much, much higher. Oh, yeah. And and, and the thing is, MMA has, I, I think, at least in my perspective, MMA has blown up in the last four or five years. The, you know, um, Conor McGregor, huge deal for that b- being. Um, but do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite combat sport that you like to um, watch as just a fan? Um, to be honest, I think probably the kickboxing on Muay Thai. Um, boxing... It, it may be, you know, a factor of the fact that a lot, the vast majority of the volume of fights that I watch are probably the amateurs. So sometimes the skill level is uh, isn't maybe there. It does seem that when guys get in the ring to do kickboxing, they tend to have been much better prepared to be in there to kickbox. That that has been my experience. Okay. Um, and like I said, with MMA, you sometimes get caught up with, yeah, there's a, it's just, it's just on the ground. The guys aren't particularly skilled at jujitsu. It's kind of a stalemate, um, and those are the, those are where I think sometimes the MMA struggles in that you've got two guys. They've not got much stand up. They've not got much ground game, but they're allowed to lie on the ground and sort of wrestle or, you know, they're up against the cage for three minutes and nobody's really (laughs) doing anything. It doesn't really matter whether the referee is going, come on, you need to do more work. Um, So that's why I would tend to go to, you know, I think the best of both worlds is, is the kickboxing for the majority of it. For me, that's the one I would. But do I watch it outside of when I'm working ringside? Not really. Oh. You know, I don't think I, I don't do the pay per views. I think we did one not long ago, but I can't even remember which one it was. It might have been the um, the girl Rousey. Oh yeah, might have, might have been yeah, she got knocked the out. The Rousey fight seconds. against the oh, what was her name? The South American. I know, I know who you're speaking of, but it was a really quick fight. It was like under a minute. It was the first round. Yes, it was done. Yes, yes. Rousey got absolutely pummeled. Pummeled. Um, you could say that again. Yes, um, that that was probably and that you know sometimes watching those ones, having done the ringside stuff, yeah, it's kind of hard to watch. Um, but again, that wasn't one where the ringside physician would have stopped it. That was one where, in my opinion, maybe. You know, and this is the other thing that I would say is amateurs is fairly easy. The officials are there. You know, they have no care who they stop. You know, if they have to say, yeah, you were the favorite, everybody likes you, but, you know, you're taking too much damage, it's stopped. Once you get up to that professional level and there's an expectation, you can see sometimes, all oh, that got left to go a little longer than it should have because if it was all things being equal – it would have it would have been stopped but that that forever will be the issue in combat sports it's it's a very difficult thing unless you even when you bring in referees from another country and stuff like that everybody's involved and they know who's who 
Exactly. You know, you can't do what Glyme did. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nearly impossible. And I and I was literally about to ask that question because you said in the beginning in the amateur fights there is no money to it, and there is yeah. like the stakes are just much lower. Once you do get to the professional fights, once you are the ringside physician for a professional fight, it, do you get any pushback, or is it your your word is? Like, you say it and it needs to stop. Like, can the ref be like, no, I don't agree? Is that even a thing? Doctor's, doctor's word overrules everything. Okay. The, they recently sort of changed some of the, well, what they did is they clarified some of the the legislation around um, combat sports here because it previously was well recognized that if the, if the corner threw in the towel, the fight would stop. But it wasn't actually recognised in combat sports legislation that the corner had the right to stop it. I've never seen the referee ignore the towel, um, but it actually wasn't protected in the legislation. That's insane. The second thing was that it recently got changed that other than a doctor being ringside... The legislation in New South Wales, anyway, is that the combat sports authority, who was set up to avoid a policeman having to be at the fight, so this was all. This all goes back to the Combat Sports Act, ah, sixties or seventies, I think, where the police basically gave the license. That has then gone to in New South Wales, anyway, and it does vary from state to state in Australia. It's now the Combat Sports Authority that has that legal representation. Um, So it has now been set in the legislation that whoever's there representing the Combat Sports Authority can also stop the fight. Oh, wow. So you now have four potential people who can stop the fight. So you've got the referee, you've got me, you've got the fighter's corner, and you've got an official. And that official can say no more. This generally because they are worried that somebody's taking damage or it's not competitive. So essentially, one guy's been outclassed, or for any reason. Okay. Um, so yes, it's now it's now very very protective of the fighters. Um, as a ringside physician, do you do any of the steroid testing? Do you do any of that stuff? Although it's, see, that is a sort of separate issue, the, the, the performance enhancement, stuff like that. So technically speaking, boxing, uh, amateur boxing under essentially AIBA is, is a drug-tested sport. It's technically under WADA, but I have never been at a fight where, what have I? No, I don't think I've ever seen the Australian branch of WADA called ASADA. I don't think I've ever seen them at a fight. Technically, they could could turn up. Um, But as is the case with all sports, you know, there's only so much drug testing that can go around. Exactly. It costs a significant amount of money to have ASADA there. So... um, the only one that I have been somewhat involved, and again, I would argue shouldn't have been involved at all, was one of the pro fights I did for a world title where both of the fighters had to give a sample. But 
it it also comes down to the promoter to sort of um, protect that that chain of custody and that sort of um, thing. And on that occasion, it was a little bit up in the air. Okay, they're supposed to get tested, but who's testing it? Which lab is doing it? Mm-hmm. it there is no, there was no testing body involved. And I guess that's the same with UFC. UFC have their own testing. They say they test because it's not WADA that do it. Um, so the short answer, I guess, was no, but that's why, is yes. that the testing body for those sports doesn't feel the need to come and test those those athletes. And then can I just ask from your professional opinion, do you think there are people using, is there performance-enhancing drugs in the combat sports that you have been working at or do you or is it impossible to tell well i guess it's impossible to tell in terms of amateur boxing i would highly doubt it okay i would highly doubt it i don't think you know it's almost like one of those things when i first started with combat sports um the amateur boxers would not have known what pre-workouts were they wouldn't have been doing protein it just wasn't a thing that was in that world okay um i think now it has and i think if anything, the UFC has changed that because the UFC have a lot of sponsors who are specifically, I would sports nutrition with definite inverted commas there, but certainly that sort of supplements and things like that is becoming more into it. Um, I would have no doubt that MMA, there's stuff going around. Um, And I guess that probably reflects society the last the last numbers you mean you're only getting wild guesstimates in terms of the the use of these things but it's it's changing it's not necessarily your athletes it's you know middle-aged guys and stuff like that and it's creeping out of the power and the strength sports where that was just a thing you did it was almost abnormal if you weren't yeah um and creeping into these other sports where endurance and um and power because there's you know huge amounts of power and conditioning required and i think the other thing is that it's become more recognized by coaches and those involved training people that it's not about mass it's about recovery and that's what the big misunderstanding by the general population has been so i can wait explain that because i'm a little i'm a little confused at that as well what do you i guess most people think that peds most people are aware of steroids make you bigger yes but that's not really what they do at all they enable you to train hard enough to get that hypertrophy if that's what you're training for so really what they do is they enhance that recovery. They do enable hypertrophy, but they enable you to train to a level and for an intensity that hypertrophy becomes more than what you could achieve without it. But the reason that there's so much drug use in the endurance sports is they enable you to train. They enable you to recover. They enable you to train hours and hours and hours, kilometers on the track kilometers in the pool wherever you're going to whatever the thing that's required for your sport and actually not be broken by it and that's why you know you're seeing lots of endurance athletes you know the chinese years ago with dht and stuff like that so you can now tell that another thing that i have a strong interest in is because not many physicians are 
is understanding the PEDs, who uses them, why they use them, and sort of helping this push that is very difficult to do in the Australian system. But there's a few guys doing it in the American system. I mean, from social media, I'm aware of guys like um, Thomas O'Connor, who looks after guys that have been or are still enhanced and tries to, you know, how do we optimize the health long term for guys that have either made the decision that they're going to do something now or they made the decision a long time ago with no information and education at all. And who's looking after them yes. and how are you how are you doing that? Um, particularly if you're a physician who only has medical school and textbook training, um, there is there is no good science to it. Who are, who are you getting this this data from, and who are they getting their regimes and stuff on? Uh, you know, generally the guys who are dealing it. So, you know, that's just a, a recipe for potential disaster. I, I love that you just explained that. I have never once in my life have been told that um, performance-enhancing drugs... I, I, you, like, I think the general population just thinks you put a needle in you and your muscles grow. I did not know that yes. it, was, it just allowed you to work out longer, which now makes more sense. Because, well, of course, if you just put like, a needle in your muscles grow bigger, that's not helpful for someone Lance Armstrong on a bike. That's not helpful for those situations. I get it. That, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so last question before we move over um, uh, to the stone lifting and all of that good stuff. Um, what is the biggest fight that you have been the physician ringside for? Sorry, I've got a garbage truck just outside. Just repeat that last one. What was the biggest uh, fight? Biggest fight. It doesn't matter which. So that was the middleweight world title for the IBF for Daniel Giel, oh. um, which was in Tasmania in... I think it was five or six years ago. So the promoter actually flew me over to Tassie, which is a separate state in Australia. It's about a two-hour flight, but it's down off the sort of southeast coast, southeast corner of Australia. Um, And, yeah, I got flown over, put up in Hobart for a couple of nights, did the fight, and then flew home. Um, So that was the biggest... um, because, again, when it comes to that sort of world title, those big fights, yeah. there are doctors who've been involved in the fight game for a lot longer than me. One of the biggest oh, names, I guess, is a guy called Lou Lewis. And Lou Lewis is a GP, but fought at an amateur level, had quite a lot of fights, and has pretty much, you know, is pretty much the guy that is going to get those sort of level of fights okay. just because he's Lou Lewis. Uh, and because he's so experienced, so that that might have sounded like he only gets the fights that are that big because of who he is, but he's extremely experienced. Um, you know, so the, I think the reason I probably got that one was because I was prepared to drop things for two days and go to Tasmania. Good for you. Good for you. Um, so I do. Let, let's go ahead and talk about these stones because you lifted the Denny stones, and it's called. It's pronounced. How do you pronounce them? Is it yeah, the Dinny Stones. The Dinny Stones, well, okay. You, you can then find the Steens um, or the Steens, which is more a, you know, writing it down as your local Scottish dialect might say it. Okay. But 
the Denny Stones. Okay. You said that you went up, you were there in the crowd You at one of the games, or you were just a spectator. You went up yep. from the audience and you lifted one of the stones, right? Tell me the process from that day to then you were able to lift both. How, wh- how did that happen? So... Going back to 2008. Yes. Um, so we had, by that time, we came over in January 03 to Australia. Um, and my wife's parents had come over a couple of times, but our kids were born. And, you know, coming up to that Christmas in 2008, they were going to be about one and two. They're both just before Christmas babies. And we'd had a plan to go back to Scotland at the end of the year and, you know, when you're going to travel halfway around the world, you start planning that quite a lot in advance. But, you know, it was just a set of funny little circumstances because I'd been starting to train with odd equipment just out of necessity, like thick bars and things, had started reading about lifting stones. I think at that point the Dinny Stones came on my radar, which was, again, odd because my parents had been living in Aberdeenshire in Scotland which is less than a 40-minute drive away from some of these manhood stones, specifically the Dinny stones. They didn't live all that far away, and I had no idea they existed. <laughs> oh, because so I also um, thought that, like, the Dinny stones and the stone lifting was a, Scot- <coughs> like, was a Scottish culture that everyone in the country knew about. No. No. Okay. No. You might, you might know about the Dinny stones if you lived near them or you were involved in Highland Games, but again... Highland Games and some of the strongman and some of the stone lifting are almost mutually, you know, not everybody does them. I mean, I don't know whether you're aware that America, actually North America, yes, North America has a very long and strong history with Highland athletics to the extent where some of the longest running most organized games, one of them is Pleasanton in California. Oh, wow. Um, specifically San Francisco, I think. Mm. So that's been going on for nearly 160 years, I think. Wowzers. And the athletics clubs of some of the major universities, Princeton, for example, their athletics was built up around the Scottish Games. Wow. So, you know, it's funny because sometimes when you're outside of that, a lot of people like to – poke fun at the Americans and how they're far more regulated and it tends to be that, you know, they'll set their weights. The 28-pound weight, for example, will be measured on post office scales so that it's dead on and accurate, you know, length of handles, all that sort of stuff. Yet you go to Scotland and do where the origin of the games is. Some of those games haven't been going on for as long Uh um, and you'll get all sorts of equipment. The handles could be no handle at all, pretty much gripping the weight. It could be long, it could be thick. You know, it's not designed necessarily for, well, there's no design because there's no real communication between the the different games. You have the Scottish Games Association that sort of is the the overall organisation, but nobody's really been interested, and I'm not saying that that's a good or a bad thing, in trying to make all the weights the same and having it, you know, you go from game to game to game and everything's the same. Oh, wow. No. There's the stone that's at this game. There's the weight at that game. There's the caber at this game. And they're all almost intentionally different. And why not? And that's another thing that I like about the games. Uh, and it used to be the same in strongman to a degree. You do one competition and 
the log would be awful, it would be really wide, um, the handles would be thick, and you'd do another strongman competition, it would be different. Uh, and with strongman, because there's been a big push and there's a big grassroots and people want to be involved, and CrossFit has made a massive difference to that. People want to do logs and stones that are all kind of the same. Um, but that wasn't particularly the case. And when I got it into it, you know, that 07 with the thick bars and then 08, Susie bought me a stone. And then we went to Bundanoon, which is one of the biggest Highland gatherings in Australia. Um, and traditionally, some of the top strongmen would run the Bundanoon stones of manhood. So they started to 100 kilos. Yeah. And up to 165 kilos and you'll place them onto a wine barrel which itself is on a riser of about six inches a metal frame so you're picking it up and putting it on top of these barrels and it was at that where i went along having trained with this 100 kilo odd stone that i'd made myself out of this mold um and lifted up that stone and then you know getting invited back and doing that and getting more into the highland games I went and trained with a guy called Craig Reed, who started his sort of strongman Highland Games career coming out of bodybuilding. Yeah. And it started doing strongman with the Tartan Warriors into the early sort of mid-90s. Um, I would drive like three, four hours up the coast to train with him and learn how to do some of these events. As I said, not coming from an athletic background, not done, did shot put like twice at school. Um, <laughs> some of the other games events totally foreign in terms of the footwork and technique um but i was reasonably strong and i guess reasonably coachable i had not terrible technique from the outset um and then that sort of brought you into the world of okay you're going back to scotland what what sort of traditional things are there you know numerous stones around scotland and the dinny stones um came into contact with a guy called Matt Waldron, who's actually a mental health nurse. He would actually be a good guy for your show. He's oh, based on... Love to. And Matt was originally from the UK down in Cornwall. He'd been out in Australia. He'd gone back, I think, a year or two before this, so 06, 07, and gone around and lifted some of the Scottish stones. Um, so I found a sort of forum, you know, much before social media. So, you know, 10 years ago... <laughs> Not many people, Facebook was nothing like it is now, but there was these forums were a lot more common. So there was a forum about the stone lifting. There's a, there's a doctor who's now more in the sort of management side of things called Bill Crawford. Mm. Crawford, I think, is the athletic director for New Hampshire Highland Games, but also has been involved in strongman and Highland Games for a long time. I don't even know how long. But he'd been back and he'd lifted some of the Scottish stones. So there is another doctor out there doing these things. Bill was definitely the forerunner. And um, and then so we sort of planned when we went back to Scotland to primarily visit family, right, got to go and have a go at these stones. But we decided to go for Christmas. So obviously midwinter oh, oh is, is not most conducive to living, lifting heavy objects. Yeah. So, um, yes, I think, I can't remember what day I did the other ones, but the Dinny Stones, it was January the 4th. We drove up specifically from Dundee where my wife's uh, parents lived, um, met up with my parents at the little 
pretty little village of Potash in Deeside. And that was in the days when the stones were not chained up. They were not chained to a wall. If you turned up, you could have a go. Um, nowadays, last four or five years, they're very much controlled by the Belogi estate that owns the pub. Yeah. Um, of course, we turned up because of January the 4th. You find a lot of those smaller Scottish hotels and pubs just closed because nobody's going to go to them. <laughs> so you can even go in, lift a pipe, lift a... Well, you couldn't lift a pipe and lift the stones in the same day because it wasn't open. Um, so, yeah, it was January the 4th. It was something like 10 o'clock in the morning. It was four degrees Celsius. Uh, I think I jogged around the back, lifted the small one, which is 144 kilos a couple of times, lifted the big one, tried to get set up, but the, the steel... You, you the, must have got, like, frostbite. It would have been freezing. Uh, so it was impossible to hang on to them, and... To be honest, probably my grip strength, I trained, I trained really pretty hard to specifically be able to do it. But when you're holding on to these, these iron sort of rings that are near freezing, you just can't feel your fingers. You can't keep that. So I ended up wearing straps. The first time I lifted them, I wore straps um, because if you're going to go all the way around the world and try and do a thing, well, you get it done one way or another. Exactly. So I lifted them wearing straps in 2008, um, continued to be involved, and then when we went back for a, a holiday which was based around another Highland Games that I did in Iceland, I do the World Masters now because I turned 40 in uh, 2015. Congratulations. So I, um, I do find it, it is almost, it's always such a cliche thing to say, you know what I mean? But since turning 40 and doing more of the Masters stuff, I've gone, you know, I don't go around and do these things. It happened around about the same time where I got out of hospital medicine and shift work. Mm. So I've been working as a primary care physician, which enables me to be flexible around my kids and their after-school stuff, which is hugely important to me. And then I slot my training in with that. There you go. So, you know, for example, my boy does martial arts. The gym he trains at has very good weight set up. So while he's doing an hour of jiu-jitsu, I'm doing one of my, my sessions. And, um, yeah, and then when we went back last year, we went to Scotland for 10 days, lifted the dinnies, lifted a couple of the other stones, and when I went back last year, no straps. No straps. straps. It was June, mid-June, so it was nice and warm. Um, A good friend of mine that I train Highland Games with, he was there at the same time. He did a lot more Highland Games because we both went to Iceland and did the Masters, but he got to lift that day. And that was when, although... Susan and Leanne knew what the Dinny Stones were. Susie had been in contact with a guy whose dad had lifted them in the 70s. He made arrangements. He pulled some strings. The estate allowed Susie to have a go. And Leanne was there in her jeans and a jacket and a scarf. <laughs> had not done any specific training for it. Had been training had, and has trained for strong women since 2009. So he's always in pretty good shape. Yeah. Um and she had a go, and the both of them came so, so close that this year, um, you know, we've got a lot of other travel plans. I'm going to Germany in two weeks to do the Masters in Stuttgart. But I said to Susan Leanne, look, you two go back. You two go back, do two weeks in Scotland, lift some of the stones again. You've got unfinished business with the Dinnies. And, yeah, Leanne made history 
and actually has blown our minds in the way that the worldwide media has taken hold of this story and, you know, beyond anything we would have thought. You know, to us, we know what the Dinnies are. People who know what the Dinnies know what the Dinnies are, but most other people have no idea. And now there's people in bloody China who know what the Diddy Stones are. So it's been surreal. It's exactly how I found out. I mean, that's the, the she is the reason I know what the Diddy Stones are. So I think that's absolutely yeah. amazing. I just want to talk about you. Yeah, because you mentioned about grip strength, right? And I feel like there's very few sports that people work on grip strength. What is your day-to-day workout like? Are you doing heavy squats, weights in the gym? Or is it always odd objects? outside or oh look i sort of trained a bit of everything for ages so in 2008 started lifting stones not really much of a program there'd be some squats there'd be some deadlifts um there'd be some lighter stuff because i was doing the throwing for the highland games sometimes i'd throw a couple of times a week and do heavy deadlifts a couple of times a week but it really wasn't very very programmed and I kind of got away with it I guess for <laughs> for the best part of 10 years um, have progressively got a bit stronger despite obviously getting older every year have got a little bit stronger I've dropped a fair bit of weight when I competed the first time I think I was about 115 to 120 kilos um, then I did a couple of Australia's strongest man and the one I did in 2010, I got up to 140 kilos um, because one of the events was pulling a truck, like a semi, <laughs> with a trailer. Um, but that was mainly Big Macs. And within about a week or two after, and not eating Big Macs anymore, I was back down to 130 kilos. Wow. And um, didn't really, and then, you know, hitting 40 and... I tore a bicep off in 2012 doing Highland Games. Yeah, I tore I tore what? that one off in 2012, and I tore this one off four years later in 2016. And when you say tore, uh, you really mean the muscle coming out of the coming off. Yeah, the I ruptured the distal tendon. So oh, um, in 2012, I was doing a Highland Games in a town called just near Wollongong, just a bit further south of Sydney and was doing an event called the log wrestle, where basically you've got log, it's got two rope handles, you're trying to push the guy out of a circle. So it's like sumo where you've got a circle on the ground, but rather than making physical contact using this log. And um, I was doing pretty well, I was going all right, and then I drew Tim O'Shea, and I joke with him all the time about it, because me and Tim still meet up at some Highland Games, and Tim is a big, big guy. Um, I mean, I was bigger weight-wise at the time, but probably not in as good condition. But we're pushing away, and all of a sudden there's this sort of funny, thuddy, poppy sound that a mate of mine was about oh my God. 15 metres away in the audience, and he had the video, and you can actually hear the bicep tendon pop oh. from where he was. Oh. Um, and I felt something was not right, and I looked down at my arm... It wasn't painful. And I look down at my arm and I see my bicep up here. I'm like, ah, uh, I know what I've done. <laughs> wow. And, um, yes, that was the end of the day for me. Oh, and please and thank you. Rather, um, rather amazingly, I, um, I still won 
the games that day because I was that far ahead on points from everything else I'd done that despite the fact that I didn't finish that event and I didn't do the last event, I still won the day on points. Um, so that was 2012. So we'd been over here for like nine years at that point, and I was starting to get a bit sick of the, the shift work. Mm. Um, I started thinking a little bit more about long-term, you know, is this the thing I want to be doing? I got I, I got to reading because of the time off that I was forced to have and sort of read the guy who, Mark Sisson, Mark Sisson's book, The Primal Blueprint. Yeah. Um, and sort of getting, looking a bit more at the paleo kind of stuff and thinking, you know, that does make sense. And, you know, in terms of performance for the human body, the better you nourish it, the closer you sort of live to that sort of maybe, that primal blueprint. And, I mean, if you're doing shift work, you're living about as far away from the primal lifestyle as you can. Forget about um, it. So a sort of epiphany at that point and started to change things around a little bit and started to eat a bit higher fat, cut down on the carbs a bit, um, start planning how I was going to get out of the hospital system. Um, so that, that I forget because that's quite a while ago now, being six years, that was where I started to think more about maybe the longevity and the health side of things as opposed to just strength and competing and doing this thing. And that then pushed into, you know, leaving and eventually going into primary care and um, and paying a lot more close attention to nutrition and training maybe slightly different, training a little bit more for general long-term health. Um, I dropped my volume way down for a while, but I would train nearly every day and, like, I would train – for maybe only 20, 30 minutes in the morning to maintain strength and just do like six sets of overhead press. And then I would never, but for a long time, I would never squat or never deadlift early in the morning because I'd read stuff about, you know, your discs are more hydrated. Therefore, your levers are a little not right first thing in the morning. Okay. So doing heavy lumbar compression first thing in the morning might be a bad thing. Um, so persisted, did okay. Throwing continued to get better, got more motivated. You know, going to Masters in Iceland last year was awesome. Continued to compete around the place. Dropped back on the strongman. I just, you know, after the bicep coming off, strongman is very, very bicep dependent, very, very grip dependent. But that, I took a whole year out. The whole of um, 2013, I pretty much sat back from strongman. I did Highland Games towards the end of the year. Um and then, you know, things sort of ticked over, had to retrain and had to go through the whole process of becoming a general practitioner in Scotland, carried on training, you know, grip is a big part of it. So I tend to, if I deadlift, I tend to try and go double overhand for as long as I can. Um, but after the bicep, I stopped mixing grip because I don't compete in powerlifting. So I, I never, I'm going to get judged on, can you hold the bar with a mixed grip? So I started wearing straps from that point. You so, you know, a few years goes by, then I'm doing a Highland Games September 2016. One of the, I think it was the fourth or fifth event was the heavy hammer throw. So I've mentioned before, you've got a solid handle. I'm winding around, I release, but at the same time, there's a, another thudding popping noise. 
and Craig Reed, who I mentioned before, Craig Reed was the, the referee and he was about 10 metres away and he says, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I think I'm all right. And I'm looking down at my arm and it sort of looked okay and then I'm moving it around a bit more and realise that me supinating, pronating really isn't making much difference to the <laughs> muscle that we hear. I'm like, ah, no, I don't think I'm okay. I think oh, I've done geez. the other one. And Craig has actually torn off both of his biceps as well during his career in Strongman. So um, I then basically iced it, strapped it up, phoned a guy who I know as a uh, upper limb surgeon and booked myself in for surgery the following Friday. Good for you. Um, oh, wait, and, that, is uh, that the only fix? You have to get surgery for it? Look, you can leave it. Oh. You can leave a distal biceps attachment, but you're going to lose up to 15% of your flexion strength. Oh. And being as I still really, you know, as you said before, what do I do out of medicine? What what stops me from the burnout and stuff like that? It's training. Training, and if you're training to have a goal and a specific point of training – makes a big difference. I encourage everybody, look, if there's a potential for whatever you do and you love, do a competition in it. There's nothing that focuses you and gives you that extra drive. And, you know, that that can make a big difference. So I decided I opted both times. This one was a lot harder because I was doing um, emergency medicine and the surgeon said you can't do emergency for a month you can't drive for a couple of weeks so that sort of slows you down but you know in the course of emergency medicine you'd be moving sometimes i'd help move patients around sometimes by dint of the fact that i'm 120 kilos (laughs) you know if there was a drug affected psychotic patient yeah i'd inevitably be there you know and that was just not something that um my surgeon thought it was a good idea. But when I did this one a couple of years ago, I was into general practice by that time. So I could work essentially with one arm, didn't didn't matter, rehabbed hard. And again, that sort of brings things into the focus of, you know, what are you going to do long-term, thinking more about the health, uh, injury recovery. So one of my special things is I get a lot of referrals for sports uh, injuries because I've had a few. Yeah. So that helps with the mindset and you tell people, you know, you've injured that limb. You've got three good ones. (laughs) Do not stop using the three good ones just because you've now got one bad one. And in fact, you know, lots of what we know in terms of the training is if you keep training and in fact you amp up your training on your uninjured contralateral limb, it prevents a lot of the muscle loss and it prevents a lot of the sort of motor problems that you get. That's amazing. So you hit around running when it comes to your rehab. Um, so in terms of the training, that was it was a bit sort of haphazard, I guess, based around other stuff, based around principles. And then after doing the Worlds last year, I started thinking, you know, am I being lazy with my own programming? So I approached a guy who used to be uh, – was a college athlete, um, now runs his own gym, was a um, an amateur and then a pro Highland gamer. His name's Mark Valenti, and um, he has a gym in Ohio uh, called Blind Dog Gym. So I sort of met him, though. You go to these big sporting events and you see people and you know the names, but you don't really meet them. You sort of talk to them a little bit. 
And I thought, well, if I'm going to get a program, because Leanne has had programs off guys who understand strongman, um, Susie, my wife, had a program off a girl who was a very successful strong woman. She's taken a bit of hiatus. And I thought, you know, they're doing it. Why don't I do it? And the reason I haven't done it is because who is going to program you for Highland Games other than somebody who understands it? Because there's no point getting a, a, a powerlifting program or a strongman when I don't really do strongman anymore. So I approached Mark just after Christmas and I said, look, I, I was aware he was doing a program. And in fact, there was another guy who'd been a pro Highland gamer who was waiting on a knee replacement. Oh. And I'd met him. I probably talked to Andrew Hobson a bit more in Iceland than I did to Mark. And, um, and Andrew was waiting on a knee replacement and was really struggling to sort of keep himself in shape because the more in shape, the more weight you drop before a TKR, the better because you don't want to be carrying any excess body weight because that's the thing that makes the biggest difference to knees. You know, when Mark had him on this program, he's doing box squats. He's box squatting 600 pounds. <laughs> I'm like, that is the program for me. And if, if, if these guys are trusting in that coach and they're throwing and he's got pro strongmen now on, his, on the same program, well, that is who I need to do a program. And I regret it about a day a week when it's uh, as many reps as possible or something like that. But at the same time, I that's that's what I've done for six months. Um, I'm stronger than I've been. I'm almost certainly conditioned better. And it does make a big difference. And this is what I now say to a lot of people who come to me and they talk about, you know, motivation and going to the gym and, you know, what they do, have a program. If you've written your own program and you can do your own program, great, do your own program. If you can buy Men's Health and do the program of Dwayne Johnson, and you know, <laughs> fine. But mentally to go in there and you know exactly what you're doing. You know exactly what you're doing. You know exactly what you're going to do. And for me, the fact that I respect Mark a lot and I respect the people, the other people that he trains, means I am not going to curtail that workout I'm not going to do three sets and go, I'm done, I'm tired. I'm going to do every rep. And I think even with overseas travel and being sick, I have only missed six workouts in eight oh. months. Oh, wow. Wow. And that would include sometimes I'll get up at 5.30 to make sure I can train before the kids get up for school and I get them breakfast and I go to work. Um but those are and now, because it works and I'm a lot fitter, I can fit that session into when my boy does jiu-jitsu or, or whatever it is. Um, so I, I absolutely love all of this. And, and I think what you said that there last is super important because I know me, and, I, and I'm not competing in anything, but I do like to stay physically fit. And you were so right. If I go to the gym and if I don't have an idea of what I'm doing, forget about it. Just for, I'm going to be perusing around making conversation with random people. But um, um, before we leave, I do want to get a quick uh, – so CrossFit is something I'm into. And uh-huh. the fittest CrossFit woman this year and last year both are Australian. Do you know yeah. anything about CrossFit and what are your thoughts on the sport? Look, there's there's doing it and there's doing it as a sport. And they're fairly different things, you know? Yeah. Um, look, CrossFit was one of the things when I was having that post-bicep rupture epiphany mm. – um, 
and looking at the paleo stuff and looking at CrossFit, the theory, the theory of CrossFit is great. Be prepared for anything. Be fit across several domains. But what it does come down to, in my experience with sports injuries as well, is that that theory is fine, but in practice, the way it's programmed is vital, super important. And it seemed to me, and this is without all the stuff that has come since, because it seems like if you're in a power sport or a strength sport, it's like fun to hate on CrossFit. Yeah. But if you have a good coach who is censoring out the stupid programming that might come out of um, CrossFit HQ and going, well, don't be doing no high, high skill work when you're fatigued. And don't be doing multiple reps on a movement which is which was never done for high rep snatches or even to a degree clean and jerks. Mm. Um, or if you're going to do them for high reps, then they need to scale right back in the intensity because those are not movements that are conducive to to your health and well-being <laughs> long-term unless you get them the right way around. Yes. Um, but the overall, the overall theory is great. And I mean... The, um, the stuff I'm interested in now I've listened to because uh, Mark did have a CrossFit gym. They, I don't think he's anymore got a, um, got a franchise, but the basic idea of be strong but be able to do reps, like I said, he, he programs in AMRAPs and stuff like that, which occasionally we do in Strongman, but it would be only 90 seconds because Strongman events only last 90 seconds. Whereas you're not going to do 20 minutes of stone loading or something like that, unless somebody tells you that that's what you need to do. Um, so I, I overall have no problem with the theory of CrossFit and if it's programmed in a way. And I think the other benefits, because I have quite a lot of patients who do CrossFit, is potentially that feeling of engagement when you're in a box and you've got other people that help motivate you. You know, that's a thing that lots of people get put off the sort of stuff you would do at CrossFit. If you said, I want you to go into a gym alone, not engage with anybody, and I want you to do exactly the same session. Impossible. Um, most people wouldn't do it. Yeah. So I think I think overall, despite the, the increased incidence, maybe in slap tears and all that sort of things that can come from kipping pull-ups, <laughs> um, I think that it has probably got more people involved and like I said there's that link in with Strongman I mean we were doing Strongman and then CrossFit kind of comes along and it takes tyre flips with a much lighter tyre and stone lifting with a much lighter stone and yoke walks and farmers walks and all of these things that were Strongman and now if you want to do Strongman and therefore go heavy you can actually find a gym with that equipment easily I can think of oh half a dozen gyms within five kilometers of our house. We live in Southwest Sydney. Mm. You know, this is not the metropolitan center of the strength <laughs> world. Um, half a dozen gyms where you could train for any of those events. That's awesome. You would probably be better to find somebody who knows what they're doing in terms of doing those events if you were going to take them heavy. But at the same time, that exposure and that sort of accessibility wouldn't have come without CrossFit. 
Okay, so before I close this out, I've I, I don't know, I've I've had this theory about athletics in general. Um I believe, like you said, it's all about doing it right. But but when you're talking about sports, especially competitive sports, athletic at the highest level, you want to be the best all the time and being the best is pushing your body to the absolute limit. And you're a special human being because you're both a competitor, you love your sport, and it is specifically in combat, but at the same time, you're a physician. So I have mm. to ask, when you look at sports, especially those people doing it at the highest level, do you think, honestly, that that is a healthy thing to do? The athletes at any sport at the highest level, is that healthy? It's mutually exclusive, isn't it? You think so? Yes. Because in order to be the best at a specific thing, you have to be sacrificing something else. You know, I have this conversation with lots and lots of people in that it is the, the difference between podium spots, really, when you're, when you're at any level, but particularly at Worlds, is injury. And your ability to either train around the injury you've got or recovery from the injury that you've had, that is what makes the difference. If you if you knew the background, which we often don't, occasionally the media will tell you about the injury that this person or that person had. The thing that is making the difference is generally, I don't think, generally not the desire to succeed, generally not the intensity of training, but it's the injuries because that is the thing that you can't control, particularly you're going to get injured. And if you're training that hard, you are going to be injured. There is no such thing as competing at the top level without an injury, because if you're not pushing the envelope that hard, you're not, you're not going to be at that top level. You know, and to a degree, that is why, and that's more about, it's not that your um, performance-enhancing drugs are about pushing you to that next level. It's about, as I said before, enabling you to train at an intensity to get to that level. And a lot of the PEDs now are enabling you to recover from the injuries that you inevitably got because you're training at an intensity to keep you at that level. So, yeah, and that goes for all sports. You know, every runner who's at a top level has got some overuse injuries. Uh, every runner who's got, who's training at that higher level is getting frequent upper respiratory tract infections. Um, every power athlete has got a bad shoulder, bad wrists, <laughs> sore knees. Um, they've got something torn. And, you know, you go out there and this is what's, you know, interesting, enlightening about going and competing with masters is we're all injured. <laughs> Um, I'm probably less injured, but of course, when it comes to masters at over 40s, I'm only just into that bracket now. Um, but you've got guys who do hard and games. Lots have been ex athletes, lots have been like you, collegiate athletes, you know, and often they've had an injury which stopped them being very, very focused on one particular move. Um, so, you know, they couldn't continue to do shot put, for example, because of a wrist thing. But, you know, they get, get introduced to the Highland Games. Their footwork, their speed, their power is good. Yes, there's a bit of the shot in the games, but it's essentially, and particularly discus, I guess, as well, that rotational technique 
is part of three or four of the throws in the Highland Games. Yeah. So they do that instead. So they go from track athletics to being Highland Gamers, and that's why the Americans are very, very good Makes because sense. they've got a huge pool of, course. of um, college track athletes, and there's quite a lot of Highland Games. And, you know, there's, there's almost that sort of established path because so many people have done it. Uh, Scotland tends to not have the track athletics background. It's just, yeah, Uncle Willie was <laughs> in the Highland Games or there's a Highland Games just down the road and it happens every year and they have access and they just start training the Highland Games from their mid-teens. Okay. Uh, and there's a junior class in Scotland and some of those guys will compete. They'll step up to the Opens and they'll do very, very well on a couple of the events that don't require quite so much physical strength, which takes a few years to come, but the speed and technique they have. So, you know, it's it's an inevitability, and that's why it's mutually exclusive. To be at the top in a sport, you must be injured, training to a degree where you're sacrificing other things, doing things that require a drive where you could argue, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, without a doubt, bloody, probably DSM-6, the athletic <laughs> mindset is probably going to be a diagnosis. I love that. Um, I, I this You explaining that just has given me a little bit more respect and wary for these insane athletes. Um, and just to end this interview, Lance, thank you for taking all this time with me. Your family. Your family is like the fittest family. How? Like, how did this happen? How is it to the point where it's you, your wife, the daughter, and you just said that your son is doing jiu-jitsu? Like, is this something that is just in the family? It's always talked about. Is something you keep all the kids into? Or is it just their choice? Because they see the parents do it. Look, I think that's, I, and I would, I would say that all the time. You lead by example. You lead by example, but you've got to you've got to know why you're doing it and have a bit of insight there. So you know, there's lots of people who are who've been athletes and they don't they don't they do it maybe more for the sports side. Mm. Whereas, like I said, I had that epiphany. This is also about you can do sport. Maybe I, you don't be the world's best, but that doesn't mean that you don't do it. Um, so you might have that that side of you know the healthy way of doing things, the nutritional side of things. Um, you know, it didn't take much for me to get Susan into training regularly. She'd been to the gym a few times, but then when we met, she would come along regularly. It took very little for her to start training regularly. And, you know, she's sort of been involved with other media and found that, you know, the stronger she got and the more empowered she kind of felt, though I hate that word empowered, it kind of, it kind of is, it gets so misused all over the place. It's like, you know, it came with political correctness, which is a thing we should be very aware of in its own sake. But it took very little pushing there. You know, she'd been, she'd been a gymnast and she'd been a, a good swimmer at school and just not found a reason to continue, I guess. And then it was just relighting that pilot light, if you guess, to that furnace. And then she became driven herself. Um, Leanne was a pretty gifted runner at school, had that in her. Um, and I guess, you know, seeing me and Susan do it, you know, I'll never forget the first time that Leanne started training. It was about four weeks before she had a birthday or something, and she decided she'd better get into shape. 
and you would not believe, and she would she would admit this. She was so uncoordinated when it came to even doing a bicep curl. <laughs> like the right was so much faster than the left, and all this sort of stuff. But I guess, I guess there often has to be something inside. And when it comes to the strength sports, does it tend to come from some feeling of you're weaker than you should be, so that you have that internal drive to be better? Um, like I said, I was a skinny teen. Yeah. Does it come from some sort of body dysmorphic feeling of you know inadequacy that drives you and pushes you, and then it becomes internalised, and it's something you couldn't do without now. I couldn't not do it. Good for you. You know, I would train whatever. If I didn't compete, I would still train. But I can't see any reason to not compete. So there you go. You know, there are guys who are over 70 still doing the Highland Games at Worlds. That's amazing. So, you know why would you stop and then with the kids it's it is very important you know the point i've made before um i did an interview with a guy called eric fiorillo who's very much into the strength and pushing yourself as a human is we need to as a human animal be active it is too much because of the way it's been marketed and the way we're all so busy and we're all doing this that you know your health and fitness is like this optional extra but it isn't the most important single thing you can do is be active and not just be active people come to me all the time and say i'm on my feet all day at work yeah that doesn't count (laughs) you know we're an adaptive animal you've already adapted to that you need that progressive resistance you need to keep pushing you will feel better for it the single most important psychiatric intervention you can do is regular physical exercise the single biggest cardiovascular thing um you know prevention of dementia movement disorders even once established um parkinson's disease there's fantastic evidence that keeping moving and and maintaining and pushing to improve those motor skills not merely doing enough to prevent deterioration why are you not trying to push it on further? So pretty much every aspect of everything in medicine is improved by doing stuff. Um, and therefore, if you're not encouraging your kids, I don't know whether you've got kids, Q. Nope. But what kids sometimes require, and you'll probably recognize this in yourself and in your past, is they require encouragement, and then sometimes, because they've not got that overall big worldview, they require a kick in the ass to make sure they still do it. Preach, Lance, preach! Yes, that's exactly right. You need that kick in the butt. You definitely do. You definitely do. Um, Lance, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. We went through all of it, and I am truly appreciative of it. Congratulations on everything that you are and everything that you have done. Um, Best of luck to you in the Masters. Um, And thank you uh before we go do you have a social media that you want people to go to and follow and check out your stuff no you 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 just in your zone i'm just i'm just me like i i i got an instagram account mainly because leanne has an instagram account and sometimes we miss things she do she does and i have people following me on instagram but i don't post anything on instagram (laughs) Because I don't, I don't see that what I do. What I do is for me and for the people who already know. They already know. You know, I'm not trying to be out there. I mean, I think about it from time to time, but I think it can be a bit funny as a physician, particularly in the Australian environment, 
to to do that and not got caught up in marketing yourself as something you're not. So my online presence is me. Good for you. It's not it's not anything else. It'll be all sorts of stuff. You know, I have an interest in music as well. I play guitar. Um, so half my post might be about music as opposed to, you know, physical fitness or strength. But I'll occasionally, you know, post something on about, you know, research, medical research. So it all there is. So my online presence is me. Good for you. Good for you. Lance, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really do appreciate you. Um, Tell the family I say hello. It, uh, thank I you. Will. And, and thank you, and thank you for what you do. Because when Susan told me that you're interested, I'm like, well, I don't really consider myself an everyday hero. But oh, the fact that you're concentrating on healthcare professionals and stuff like that, and you're giving a platform because people otherwise they just see, you know, doctors. You know, I buck the stereotype massively. <laughs> I get that, told that every day. Um, but for us to stick together, you know. Yes. People will often say, oh, you know, how does it feel to save a life and stuff like that? When I used to do emergency, anyway, I said, I don't. The team does. You know, the doctor, yes. you know, we, we get told it trauma all the time. You're a team. But you're a team when you're not in trauma. You know, I don't do the bedpans. I don't do the washing. I'm not there holding the hand of the person who's scared. Sometimes I would. But, you know, if we're not a team, then no single individual in that whole system exactly. is is the most important. Everybody's important. Lance, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you, thank you. For me, it's good night, but for you, it's good day. Um, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> have a good one, Lance. Thank you very much. All right. You take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.